we should divorce when we go, I love you, you're awesome, but you're not going where we're going, and that's awesome, that's great, let's support you. I want you to be happy, and this is not the place for that. In fact, if you stay here, you'll become unhappy, and as you become unhappy, you'll become poisonous to this culture. You're listening to the Profit by Design podcast, episode 66. You work hard in your business. On the Profit by Design podcast, we ask the big question, what has your business done for you lately? Hi, I'm Dr. Sabrina Starling, the business psychologist, the author of How to Hire the Best, and your co-host on the Profit by Design podcast. Weekly, my co-host, Mike Bruno, and I bring you tips, tools, and strategies from our own experiences and from the experiences of our guests who are entrepreneurial thought leaders and real-life entrepreneurs, all to support you in making intentionally profitable and sustainable business decisions to live the lifestyle you desire. We are nearing the end of 2019, and now is a great time to be taking stock of your business to get ready for 2020. Profit designers, we have created a tool for you at Tap the Potential to help you identify the parts of your business that are strong and the parts of your business that need attention in order for you to have a highly profitable, great place to work that gives you your life back. You know, do things like take a four-week vacation if you want to, or just have that freedom to do something else in your life that's important to you besides working all the time in your business. So if you want to get a handle on what to put attention to in 2020 to make your business sustainably profitable, to get your business where it can run without your daily involvement, take our assessment at tapthepotential.com forward slash assessment. You will get feedback on what's strong in your business and what areas need the most attention from you in 2020. Again, you can take that at tapthepotential.com forward slash assessment. Profit designers, when it comes to creating a highly profitable, great place to work, one area where we need to be putting significant attention is on building relationships with and creating loyalty with our A player team members. Now, with the release of How to Hire the Best, we've been doing a lot of talking about attracting and hiring those A players. Today, I want to shift the focus to talking about how do you retain A players on your team, and that comes to loyalty. So we are very fortunate to have a loyalty expert with us today. We have Dov Barron joining us. Dov has been twice cited as one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers to hire, also cited in the Meeting and Event Professionals Guide to the Top 100 Motivational Speakers, and he's been named as one of the top 30 global leadership gurus. Dov is a man with a finger on the pulse of the evolving world of next-gen leadership. He is a best-selling author of several books. His latest book is Fiercely Loyal, How High-Performing Companies Develop and Retain Top Talent. He is the host of the national U.S. TV show Pursuing Deep Greatness with Dov Barron on Roku TV and the host of the number one podcast for Fortune 500 listeners globally, Dov Barron's Leadership and Loyalty Show on iTunes. And it's also carried on FM and AM radio stations across the United States. 
Dov also writes for and has been featured in many industry magazines, including being featured on CNN, CBS Small Business Pulse, SHRM, Yahoo Finance, Boston Globe, Business in Vancouver, USA Today, CEO, Entrepreneur, and many more. Dov Barron has been speaking internationally for over 30 years. He has had the honor of presenting for many esteemed audiences. So with that, let's dive into the interview with Dov. Welcome, Dov. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation, and I'm certainly looking forward to serve. Well, we are here to serve, and talking about loyalty you are a loyalty guru, like supreme guru on loyalty. Hold on a second. I have to bend over because that smoke's not gotten quite up my skirt yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to make sure that our profit designers fully understand what we've got here in front of us. And when it comes to creating a great culture in a business, it is really about how we as the leaders show up in that business and When it comes to creating loyalty, it's not about our team members. It starts with us. Absolutely. And this is the biggest mistake that leaders often make is they go, you know, they blame millennials. Or millennials are just not loyal anymore. Or, you know, they blame something else. But the bottom line is, your people aren't loyal. It's your fault. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to bend you over and kick you in the hoo-ha. But the fact of the matter is, it's you. It's a leader's responsibility. So if your people are not loyal, you're not communicating. And the biggest part of communication is listening. You have to listen to them because on the war on talent, one, that's it. You are not the winner. They're the winner. They have the power. They have the control. And you've got to do your best to make sure that you keep your good people because millennials stay in a job for 1.2 to 1.5 years right? They stay in a career for four years. When I entered the workforce, it was 40. That's 10 times less. So you want to keep them for a full career minimum in order to get your return on investment, which is 1.5 to two times their annual salary and your training and developing of them. So you've got to keep them or you're going to go out of business. Absolutely. And so with many of our profit designers being small business owners, when we lose one team member, if we have 10 people on our team, that is one tenth of our team. And if we're looking at team members only sticking around for a year or two and we're investing in their training, we have no opportunity to be profitable because payroll is the biggest expense in a business. But when we're working with A players and we're focusing on creating loyalty and keeping them in a great culture, then that's when we have the opportunity to create that profitable, great place to work. So I've been reading your book, Fiercely Loyal. I have tons and tons of notes and things I want to get into with you. And I know we can't get into all of it today. So for our listeners, I want to just preface this by saying, after you hear Dov's interview, go buy his book. (laughs) You need all the nitty gritty details here. And I think one of the biggest points that you make in there is that salary does not buy loyalty. Not at all. Those days are over. Nobody's loyal to a salary. Yeah. Not anymore. Well, they are. That's not true. They are, but only to a point. And that once you reach that point, which is $72,000. Now, let me be clear, because this is often misquoted. This is $72,000 equivalent. It's not $72,000. So for instance, if you live in San Francisco, that $72,000 is not the same as if you live in Cleveland, Ohio. 
So it's a 72,000 national average. And so, for instance, if you live in Vancouver, where I live, you know, we have some of the highest property prices in the world. Like we're right up there with London and New York and San Francisco. So 72 grand is not going to, you're going to be living in a cardboard box somewhere. So it's about that. But once people are over that, then money doesn't matter that much to them, particularly if they're millennials. So they are actually more concerned with being part of something that they are connected to emotionally, that they feel a connection to the purpose and the mission and why we're doing what we're doing. And this is why they will, this is what's really great for your listeners who are often smaller businesses, is understanding this, that many top talent millennials would rather work for you than a large corporation. You need to know that. Why? Tell us why, Dov. Well, because, you know, you're going, oh my God, I can't compete with Google. You're right, you can't. You probably don't have a cappuccino machine and a foosball machine and all that. And all that is, it doesn't matter that much. It really doesn't. People will go work for Google and they'll work for Apple and they'll work for Amazon and they'll work for those big name places, but that's because they want on their resume. That's it. And part of that, how you know that is because a lot of the time they worked out for free as an intern. So it's not about money at all, but they want to work for you. And here's why. Number one, high, high, high. And by the way, when I say millennials, I want to be clear. Millennials, as this is going out, will be close to 40 years old. They're not kids. So they're leaders already. So many millennials, high, very high on their rating of what's important to them is autonomy. They want their voice to be heard. They don't want to be micromanaged. And oftentimes in a large company, they don't feel that flexibility. They don't feel like their voice is going to be heard. So when they work inside a small company, you have got to give them a voice and they're happy to do that. They also don't like uniforms. They don't like having to dress the way you want them to dress. So in a smaller company, you can give them that flexibility. You can give them the room to work from home. One of the big traps that I work with leaders is that they say, yeah, but these people turn up late. Who cares? Why the hell does that matter? This is not 1956. It doesn't matter. What matters is that they do what you need them to do within the timeline you set. If they decide to do that at two in the morning because they like to sleep till 11, I don't care. Just get it to me when I need it. That's it. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason is this, is that small businesses tend to have at least an emotional driver. They don't necessarily have a purpose, but they have an emotional driver. And it's raw. And people are very attracted to that. They're like, you know, this is why this matters to us. It's not refined as a purpose yet, but this is why this matters to us. And a lot of larger companies have what they call a purpose, but it's actually, it's BS. What it really is, is a mission statement with a lick of paint. It's made to look like a purpose, but it's not. And the great thing about, I love about millennials is they have bullshit meters a mile wide and they read that stuff. So they want to work for you. You've got to make it attractive for them to work for you. What does that mean? You've got to listen to them. You've got to give them a voice. You've got to give them an opportunity to grow, change, and learn. They'll stay with you for a full career. So we had a guy who worked for us, a millennial, and he stayed with us for six and a half years. That's unheard of. Why? Because he changed careers four times inside my company, and we have a small company. Because I just went, oh, well, do you want to learn this? And he went, yeah, okay, cool. Let's learn this. Then you train that other person in how to do the other thing. He loved doing that, and he kept growing. And by the way, he was a month working into us. And I said, when he worked for a month, I said, loving you working here, Gus, but I know I want you to know something. He goes, what? I said, you're going to leave. He goes, no, no, I like it here. I like it a lot. I said, no, no, I want you to understand. I'm not saying you're leaving today. You are going to leave. And when you do, I will have trained you for everything you'll need so that you can leave us. 
and I want to be your first customer. I don't want you to go work for anybody else. I want you to work for yourself. Well, guess what? That built a ton of loyalty. He knew that he never had to sneak around. When he was building his business on the side, he told me about it. I was happy about that. He wasn't taking any hours away from me. And when he left, my costs went down because I could pay him to do the projects he was doing. He wasn't a full-time employee. That's beautiful. So you called it out for him so he didn't have to hide anything. And you told him you want him to succeed. You want him to have every opportunity and you're going to give him every opportunity. And the other thing that I hear in that is you were moving him around based on his interests and the new opportunities that were being presented as your company was growing and evolving. And you were paying attention to his strengths. Exactly. And this is the thing, like, so old school businesses, we need to find somebody to fit this box. We're going to plug them in and they're going to be there for the rest of their life. That's not going to happen with a millennial. They're just not going to do that. They're going to get bored real fast. Listen, so I've been speaking and teaching for 35 years. And I remember in the very early 90s doing some research and finding out how long it took for a fighter pilot to train to be able to fly a fighter pilot plane. I think it was like 27 months or something. It was like two and a quarter years or something. Within 10 years, that had come down to three months. Three months. Today, it's two weeks Why? Because today's people who are flying those planes have had a ton of screen time. That thing that we hate our kids doing, they've had screen time and they're used to multiple screens at a time. So they don't learn the way we did. We go, oh, you know, these kids are all distracted. No, 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 they're not. They learn differently than we do. We're looking at millennials through the eyes of baby boomers and Gen Xers. That's dumb. You have to look at them in their context, not in ours. When we do that, it changes everything. And we go, okay, so they can do this. They actually work well. If I was a kid and I had my record player on it and I was doing my homework, I would get in trouble because you can't focus on both. Now kids have one earphone in where they're listening to music. They've got a phone on. They're texting their mate. They're doing homework with. They're working on the screen. And they've got another pad open that they're doing for research. And they're good with that. I personally, my head would explode, but it's great for them. (laughs) Yeah. So we have to deal with them on their own terms and how they learn and how they operate in the world. Get out of our own bias. One of the things that you talk about in Fierce Loyalty is that every business needs a chief relationship officer. What does that mean? So thank you for bringing it up because it's actually not brought up very much. In Fiercely Loyal, I talk about the need for a CRO. And I said, whatever your title is, if you're CEO or CFO or whatever you are, Whatever it is, and by the way, if you're the janitor, you should also be the CRO. It can be a position, but it should be everyone's position. You, Everybody is a chief relationship officer. One of my presentations that I do is on how to thrive in the age of AI. And one of the things that we're talking about in that, I'm speaking about that in a couple of conferences coming up around the U.S., one of the things we're talking about that is as AI takes over, 40% of normal jobs will disappear within 15 years. And everybody's crapping their pants. Well, okay, I get that. I understand that. But let's remember that everybody was crapping their pants when the horse and buggy was going away. And you didn't go out and invent a new whip for a horse. I mean, it was not smart. You may have been freaked out about it, but you actually had to evolve. We learn. We evolve. That's what happens. So that's the thing. So what is the skill that will last us? And that is relationship skills. You have got to build your relationship skills. You've got to invest in your people learning emotional intelligence and how to communicate better. But as a business, 
you have on two sides. A chief relationship officer on external is learning how to have the relationships that will build the business by learning how to listen and pay attention to what your customer really wants. Because most, and this is one of the things that's important for small business to realize, most business has become democratized. And so you've become really just one of millions. I mean, you know, you can get anything you want anywhere you want. So why would I buy it from you when I can get it cheaper down the road? Because I have a relationship with you. That's why. Your listeners, Sabrina, listen to you because they have a relationship with you. How many podcasts are there? My God. Oh my gosh. There's 700,000. I don't know. Over a million maybe. So why are they listening to you? Because there's a relationship here. So that's the external side of it. The internal side of it is this, is if you've got a bunch of AI working in a lot of those jobs, you now are left with dealing with people who run that AI. And if you don't know how to do that, you're going to be out of business very, very fast. So you have to learn how to, number one, what is the purpose of this organization? And I mean not mission, purpose. That's not your why, it's your purpose. It's different. What is the purpose of this organization? If this is the purpose, what are the maxims of this organization that support that purpose? And if those are the maxims, what's non-negotiable? Because here's the thing, you should show up working for me and I should say to you very simply, here's the thing, you're going to love it here or you're going to hate it. There is no in-between. You will love it or you'll hate it. And here's who we are. This is our purpose. These are our maxims. This is what's non-negotiable. If you're not okay with that, that's great. I'll help you to find another job. But if you are, and this is what you just thrive in, this is going to be a delicious place for you. And everybody's too afraid, particularly small business. Oh, you know, I don't want to to offend anybody. Get over it. Build Leadership is this. Build a thinner fence. Not a wider fence, a thinner fence. So you can push people off on one side or the other. Take your pick. It's okay. Get clear. Well, I tell you what, this is such a critical point because in How to Hire the Best, we talk about immutable laws and immutable laws are immutable. They are the culture of the business and the team members. The first criteria for hiring is goodness of fit with those immutable laws. So I totally agree. Someone either fits or they doesn't. There's no in between. And when they don't fit, help them find their next opportunity as soon as possible or push them off the fence, whatever you need to do. Well, to me, pushing them off the fence is not, it may sound aggressive, but it's not aggressive. It's actually, I want to support these people in finding a great place to work. So listen, I know Charlie down the road is looking for somebody just like you. This is not a fit here, but they really need somebody like you. And that's great. Let's find you that place. Let me introduce you to that person. So it's very direct. It's very clear. It's fierce, as in fierce loyalty, but it's deeply compassionate, deeply loving, deeply relational. And this is the thing that people think these two things are separate. You're either fierce and you're aggressive or you're compassionate and you're a wet dishcloth. No, that's terrible. You need to be both. You need to be fierce, but fiercely compassionate. You need to really show up for your people and actually give a crap and really care about them deeply so that you'd say, listen, I want to give you an example in a different context because I think people will get it. Can I ask you this question, Sabrina? Yeah. When do most people get divorced? How do they feel about each other at the moment of divorce? Not good. They don't like each other. Right. They usually hate each other. Yeah. That's what's wrong with our society. That is what, right there is what's wrong with employment and it's what's wrong with society. We only leave when we hate it. That's a terrible, terrible process. We should divorce when we love each other, but we're not going in the same direction. 
Whether that divorce is in a romantic primary relationship or whether that is a divorce between an employer and an employee. We should divorce when we go, I love you, you're awesome, but you're not going where we're going, and that's awesome, that's great. Let's support you. I want you to be happy, and this is not the place for that. In fact, if you stay here, you'll become unhappy, and as you become unhappy, you'll become poisonous to this culture. And this is what people don't get. They're dinglings. They go, oh, you know what, we'll just keep them around because we need them. No, they're poisoning your culture. Yeah, but they take care of this, and they're poisoning your culture. So I had a person work from, I was working with a while ago, a CEO and, and working with a team. And I said, you're going to have to get rid of this person. And this person is like the top producer. And they're like, why? I can't do that. This isn't my top producer. And I said, how much more does this person produce than all the rest of that team? And he said, about 20%. I go, here's the deal. I promise you within one month of that person going, that slack will be picked up and gone beyond by everybody on the team. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, because this top producer is able to top produce because he makes everybody else feel like crap. When that person is gone, everybody's game will go up. And guess what? You'll gain some respect back. But here's what you need to deal with. Because every one of them will be thinking it, but they won't say it, which is, why did it take you so damn long? Because guess what? Real leadership, it takes kahunas. It takes gonads. You've got to have the courage to lead. Leadership is not for wimps. So... Say goodbye when you still love each other. Absolutely. When you recognize the fit is not there, they can be a wonderful person. They may fit elsewhere, but they're not a good fit for your company. So don't keep them around long enough to become someone that you can't stand anymore. Because at that point, and I told everything you said, so true. I hear that story over and over about you let them go. Thank goodness you let them go. And how come it took you so long? (laughs) That piece happens all the time. Yep. When it gets to that point where it's vitriolic to keep them in the company and you have to let them go, now they are out there all over the place talking about your business. And if you're in a small town and you have a small business, the word on the street about your business has just gone down the toilet. But if you can let them go when you still like each other, now they're out there saying, you know, it just didn't work out. But I have a lot of respect for Charlie. He's a good guy. He's tried to help me find another opportunity that was a better fit for me. Yeah, and as I said in Fiercely Loyal, you know, you, the thing about when you build a fiercely loyal culture, your people, the ones who leave, who go back into the talent pool, become evangelical for you. They're the evangelists for your organization. They say, listen, you know, I'm a person who needed more stimulus and I wanted to go and find out something new and there was nothing there for me anymore. But, you know, working for Sabrina or working for Fred or working for Susan or whoever it was, they were awesome. They were wonderful. It just was, I had grown that. But what they really need right now is this. And I think you'd be a great fit because they're a wonderful company. So everybody's holding on and trying to keep people stuck and they're actually poisoning their own business. So that ties into something else that you talk about is the fear of conflict that we have. Mm. And you have a really interesting take on what is at the root of the fear of conflict. And first off, one of the things you say is we all go around thinking that the number one fear in life is public speaking. And you say, no, no, it's actually fear of conflict. Yep, it's fear of conflict for sure. Because at the root of conflict is the primary fear, which is I won't be a member of the tribe anymore and I'll get rejected. That's what it is. So when they look down as you speak and they go, ooh, you feel rejected. And you'll tell yourself stuff like, I'm stupid, I didn't get it right. You know. But the fear is being rejected. So because we fear, this is like, if I could get this into people's head, if I could inject it in right now, it would be wonderful. 
that fear of rejection is poison. We all have it. It's in our system. So you just got to know that, you know, you've got cortisol in your brain and cortisol is a magnificent thing. It actually gives you speed. It gives you agility, makes you quickly responsive, but it's also poisonous if you have too much of it. It actually causes Alzheimer's and diabetes and all kinds of problems in your system. It's the same with the fear of rejection. The fear of rejection actually pushes us to connect with other people. It's part of how we bond. It's a powerful and there's a neurochemical response to it. It's powerful, but too much of it actually stops us from bonding. It goes the other way. So we're terrified of rejection, so we don't bother getting engaged. So when we are afraid of speaking, we're actually not afraid of speaking, we're afraid of rejection. When we're afraid of conflict, we're afraid that we won't be liked. And so here's the thing. It's the framework that's wrong. There's nothing wrong with the conflict, it's the framework. So most of us have a framework that conflict is bad because we probably saw some shitty conflict. You know, your mom, dad screamed at your dad, your dad screamed at your mom. Maybe they didn't scream at anybody or anything, and it was all plastic smiles until one day you woke up and you were nine years old, and mom and dad said, we're getting divorced. And you went, what the hell? Nothing was going on. I don't understand it. Because I hear both of those. You know, my mom and dad fought all the time. We kind of expected it, but it was crap. And I also hear, oh, my mom and dad were like, we had this perfect, I've heard people say, I had a perfect childhood until I was 11, and then my mom and dad got divorced. It wasn't a perfect childhood. Hello, wakey, wakey. You were living in a dream because they were selling you a bag of poo, and now you have to realize the truth, right? So you learn models for conflict. And very often, the models we've learned are unhealthy. What we have to learn is healthy conflict. And healthy conflict requires listening and hearing the other context. Did you get that? I want everybody to hear that. Hearing the other context. If you're in a relationship right now, you have had an experience where you've said something to the person you love more than anybody in the world and you've pissed them off and upset them and you have no idea why. If you're in a relationship, you have had that experience. We've had that experience, right? Like, what did I do? And you might have even thought that was a compliment and you hurt them because there's a context that's not yours. And conflict resolution is the ability to hear the context of the other person. And this is important. Their context is not present tense. Their context is always somewhere in history, and they may not know it in that moment. When I, I'm a passionate guy. I know you probably never noticed that, but I'm a passionate guy. <laughs> not at all, Bob. <laughs> no, so laid back and cool. So I'm a passionate guy. Now, as a passionate guy, when I'm excited about something, I'm out there, I'm speaking about it, I'm, you know. But when I'm pissed off, I'm also out. But my wife's context is going to be her father and who he was when she was a child. And he was a passionate guy who was violent. So that brain trigger grows off. There's nothing cognitive about that. It's not a conscious thing. It's an unconscious trigger that happens. Now, because of our relationship and the depth of that and 20 odd years of being together, I know what it is. I can't not be a passionate guy. I won't repress who I am. That's ridiculous. But at the same time, I can have an awareness of that context and that when I see that tiny little micro twitch in her eye, I go, oh, okay, I'm being the reminder of dad. And I can remind, I can step into and say, oh, you know, hold on. This is just me being like this about this. It's got nothing to do with you. And it's like, oh, okay. And suddenly her brain comes back online. Her cortisol moves away and the blood flow to the frontal cortex of her brain starts to work again. And she's great. On the other hand, it's the same with me. She look at me sideways and, you know, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so rejected by the woman I love more than anything in the world. And I'm feeling like this insecure little child. And, you know, maybe she's got gas. 
maybe that face was, oh, God, I got gas, right? But my brain says, oh, it's my mom rejecting me. This is what I'm trying to get everybody to understand. Just for a moment, if you could take out a pen and write this down. People think the past is gone. Here's what I want you to know. Your past is leaking all over your present and about to pollute your future. You have to deal with your past. It's not gone. It's all over your reality. And you go, well, I'm a very logical, rational person. I know that you don't want to hear that. And I know that many people I know who are my very good friends who think they're very rational, logical. That's not how the brain works. The unconscious mind is many thousands of times faster than the conscious mind. And logical, rational thinking goes on in the conscious mind. So you are going to make emotional decisions. You're going to tell yourself rational lies about it. But that's what they are. They're rational lies. What you have to do is recognize it, come to terms with it, own it. And when you own it, you can deal with it as it shows up. But the other side of it is you can do exactly the same with others. You are able to have context that's not yours. I know for sure that everybody in this world, unless they have a serious mental illness, no matter how shitty the thing is they're doing, they're doing it for one reason. They want to feel better. That's it. So when your employee is behaving in a way that's just like you shake your head and you go, what is wrong with these people? That's your context. Their context is, I'm trying to feel better. About what? I don't know. About what? They may not know because they may not have dealt with whatever it is. But that is the driving force. And if you can understand that and you can bond people to you by creating a purpose in your organization, then they feel better being in your environment. And that's what keeps them loyal. They want to feel better. And the purpose is what helps them to feel better. And it creates that bond. There's more that you talk about in the book with respect to the oxytocin and the impact of oxytocin. And I know with my background in psychology, one of the books that I read when I was an undergrad was all about the power of touch and how important touch is. In your book, though, was the first time I'd encountered that there is a way to trigger the release of oxytocin that doesn't involve any touch whatsoever. How do we do that? And why is oxytocin important here? Right. Well, I know that you understand this, but, you know, so here's the thing, just to give everybody context. When you arrived in the world and you were placed on your mother's chest, particularly if you were breastfed, even for a moment, but even being on that breast, there is a release in your brain of oxytocin, which is a neurochemical. That is called the bonding chemical. And it's fascinating research around this. I've been studying for more than 15 years, and I just love the whole thing around oxytocin. So when a baby is first put onto the breast to feed, there is a massive release of oxytocin in the mother that floods into the system and then into the milk for the baby. But the baby's brain, that it then sets the trigger in the baby's brain that happens the same. And the bond is phenomenal. And what we know is there is an exchange of cells in the womb between the mother and the child that remain in the mother, rather, for 26 years. So when mom says, you know, I don't know, I've got this weird feeling that Johnny's not okay. Johnny's like 23. You're like, come on, he's not a baby. That's going on. That's real. And part of what happens is it's the firing of oxytocin or the suppressing of oxytocin that tells signals to the brain of the mother. It's absolutely amazing. Now, as I talked about in the book, I'm of a generation, and I'm certainly not going to be changing this, and I am a big supporter of the Me Too movement, and I have a hashtag on social media that is he for she, H-E number four, she. So I'm very supportive of women in leadership and all those kinds of things, but I'm not going to stop hugging people. (laughs) I'm with you, Dove, that we have taken that out of our 
culture and it's not healthy. It's not healthy at all, but you may need to ask for permission. And I'm okay with that. I've done in the past. I will fully own that. I would just give you a hug. But now I'm like, you want a hug? Yeah. Okay, cool. You know, because I'm a hugger and I'm not going to stop doing that. But I know I now need to like, okay, there's a step I didn't use to take, which is permission. All right. I'm good with that. I'm no problem with that. But that actually bonds people. It actually bonds people. But here's the thing. If you sit in front of somebody eye to eye. And so here's an exercise. We do this with executive teams. And, you, and by the way, if you have a small company, Let's say you got 10 people. I'm going to give you an exercise to go do with them Friday afternoon before they go home or Monday morning when they first come in. And here's what I want you to do. Let's say you got 10 people. I want you to sit two by two facing each other. Don't touch. Knees are not touching. You're just close. And just hold eye contact and see if you can regulate your breath with them. As they breathe in, you breathe in. As they breathe out, you breathe out. Just get in sync, just like a baby would do with a mother as it lays on her chest. And just say with each other's eyes, put a timer on, one minute. You'll feel so uncomfortable because we're not comfortable being intimate. It's a deep intimacy. Do that, then rotate. So you have five rotations so that everybody has gone through and connected with everybody. Now ask everybody, how do you, and by the way, before you start, just say, secretly, take a piece of paper and say, how do you feel on a scale of one to 10 connected to each individual? So on a level of one to 10, how connected are you to Charlie? Three, Charlie's a bit of a wanker. Okay, how are you with Susan? Oh, Susan's pretty awesome. I give her an eight, fantastic. How are you with Bob? Bob's kind of a bit weird and wacky, but you know, I kind of like him, he's a six. Okay, so you put all your numbers down. Then you do this exercise. One minute each person, that's it. So you're going to be done in 15 minutes all up, right? Then without saying a word, you go through that list again and you mark if it's the same or if it's different, if it's up or if it's down. I guarantee you every one of them is up. You just created loyalty in your organization because you just flooded the brain with oxytocin and you got people bonded to each other. That's powerful. That is incredibly powerful. And it'll take a lot of courage to be the leader who goes in on Friday afternoon or Monday morning and does that with your team. But it's the leader who has to go first. Thank you for saying that. So here's the thing. I said it before. Leadership takes courage, but leaders lead. That means, so what you would do, you know, we talk a lot about it in the book. I know you're a big fan of it. Vulnerability. You would say, I am terrified of doing this. I am ready for the diaper. This is very uncomfortable. But I really want to try this with us because we are a small company and we care about each other. And I want us to care about each other. I'm going to lead, but I want you to know, I want to find out if you'll be willing to come there with me if I go first. What is it? Okay. Everybody will be uncomfortable, but you've owned that you're uncomfortable and leaders go first. And so you go, okay, I'm going to go first. And people are like, okay, if you can do it, I can do it. Yes. And it changes everything. So profit designers, I would love to hear if you're doing this, come back into our Facebook group and share because all it'll take is that first person to do it. We have a virtual team job. So I think we could do it over Zoom on our team, but it might not. It'll have effect, but it won't be as powerful as in person. It's not as powerful as in person. You're absolutely right, but it does work. Mm -hmm. That's what's fascinating. It does work, but you have to a little more parameters around it, which is you can't have notifications popping up on the screen or, or your phone or any of that. So you have, but it's absolutely being present. And if you and I did it right now, Sabrina, for one minute, you'd realize how long that minute is. Mm -hmm. And for those people watching this, they would be like, what do we do? Like they would feel the discomfort of it. So it's interesting because we are driven for intimacy. We definitely want it, 
but we're so poorly trained in it that we're uncomfortable with it. One of my clients is a very powerful banker and very successful. Everything looks, you know, the way it's supposed to look on the outside. Lovely wife, met his wife, beautiful lady, kind, caring, loving, three fabulous kids, all that kind of nice house, right car, cottage, a home, all those kinds of things. And he came to me because he said, you know, I really need to upgrade. I want to find my purpose. I want to actually speak about my purpose. So we started working together. And I said, you know, here's the deal with my work. It's not just about your leadership. It should impact every area of your life. He's like, okay, because he doesn't really know what I'm actually going to do. And then he says, oh my God, you know, I realize now what my wife was talking about for the last 20 years. And I go, what's that? He goes, I don't know how to be intimate. So we start working on that. And he realizes, you know, that he's now doing things to be more intimate. And he's like, I'm just terrible at this. You know, and of course, he's an A-type personality. So he's got to be excellent at everything. And I said, okay, do you speak Chinese, Mandarin? He goes, no. I go, if I expected you to learn Mandarin and speak it fluently in three weeks, what do you think? And he goes, that would be ridiculous. I go, oh, okay. Exactly the same with this. This is a language you've not learned. You grew up in a family that, that were nice, that said, I love you, but there was no intimacy. And part of, by the way, this is coming in circle, part of intimacy is conflict. People don't realize that. Because if you think about this for a moment, if you imagine on this side of you, You've got a friend you've known for, let's say, however many years it is. And on this side, you've got an acquaintance you've known for about the same amount of time. So one side is a friend, the other side is acquaintance. This person is a fiercely loyal friend, and this person is an acquaintance you've known for the same amount of time. What's the difference? You might go, I don't know. Well, the answer is reciprocal vulnerability. You don't have the reciprocal vulnerability with an acquaintance. You do with a friend. Now, what's part of reciprocal vulnerability? You are getting on my nerves. We talk about our conflict. And in a relationship that builds and gets deeper, whether that's a marriage or whether that's an employee or anything or a friendship, it's the willingness to confront where we disagree. Some of my greatest friends, I disagree with entirely on certain subjects, but we can talk about that and we can respect that and we can have the connection around that that allows us to deepen our friendship. So part of intimacy is conflict. So guess what? This guy had never, he doesn't fight with his wife. He never fought with his wife. And I can see her poking him to try and get him to fight. She doesn't want to fight. She wants to connect. But conflict is part of that. So, Dove, how do we as leaders, when we have team members who fear conflict, who fear speaking up and sharing an opinion or an idea that is different than the main one in the room at the time, Mm -hmm. how do we create that safe space so that we get people coming forward and being willing to engage in some conflict? That's a great question. And so the first thing we have to do is change the word. There's a negative context to the word conflict. For me, it's not a negative word, but I understand that for most people, it's a negative word. So you have to find a new word for that. And you can use whatever word you want, whether that's a dialogue or narrative or, you know, these new words that are thrown around. It doesn't matter to me, whatever word works for you. So that's number one. Number two is understanding this. And I'm going to tell you this because I think everybody needs to understand this. The biggest, the worst piece of advice you ever got was surround yourself with like-minded people. It's very thrown around. It's a terrible piece of advice. And here's why. Because if you're on social media, and you are, if you're in the first world in some way, shape, or form, there are something called algorithms. And those algorithms will give you more into your feed of whatever it is you like. You are already surrounded by like-minded people, and it's not making you smarter, it's making you dumber. It's because you don't learn unless you can expand your thinking, 
right? So for me, I click on CNN, I click on Fox, I click on Al Jazeera, I click on BBC, I click on RT, Russian television. I click on all of those because I want a large variety. NPR, I want all the variety so that I screw with the algorithm so it keeps giving me opinions I don't necessarily agree with, but I will watch and go, oh, I never thought about that. So what it becomes then is this is a way to encourage intelligence in the organization. So this is an intelligence exercise. That's what we do. It's not a conflict. It's an intelligence exercise. Then what we frame it in is an expansive context. So the context of the company right now is that the customer is always right. Well, I don't think they are. Okay, well, if you come at it like that, you're going to just hit against a wall and we're going to go, well, you're wrong. Okay, but now can we have an intelligence context where we look at this from another angle? Because context is simply another angle. That's all it means, right? So what is this? If you don't know, it's a thin red line. But then if I turn that, then you go, oh, it's an iPhone. Okay, but it doesn't look like an iPhone from one angle. From another angle, it looks like something else altogether. You might not know it, particularly if I cover up the logo. So everything is like that in life. So it's coming at these things of saying, let's come at this from a different way. So the exercise we do is to say, I want you to approach this as part of how we work with companies, getting to think differently, to say, I want you to approach this as if you were a dress designer. I want you to approach this as if you were a potter. I want you to approach this as if you were a vegetable gardener. What is our problem using that metaphor and what would be the solution only using the solutions of being a potter, only using the solutions of being a physicist, only using the solutions of being a whatever it is. And it's just to allow people. So you've got to get people's brains to expand first to being open to new ideas. Then you can come at conflict. Then when you deal with conflict directly, it's always understanding you're arguing your context. You're not arguing against me. Oh, so it's not personal. It's the context. That's the key. Okay. It's never personal. It's always context, right? So, you know, I don't like your hair. What's wrong with my hair? Well, you know, it just looks messy. What's the context? Well, I'm 72 years old and women are supposed to have tidy, clean hair and it's supposed to be all neat. And yours is loose curls. It's just unprofessional. And you're wearing a cardigan. Well, there's a context there that's related to a generation. It's got nothing to do with your hair. It's got nothing to do with your cardigan. People say to me, you know, I don't like, you know, you're wearing earrings. It's very unprofessional. Well, I'm sorry. That's okay. I've been part of my brand since I was 15 years old, and I'm a little bit older than that now. And I like it. And it's okay that you don't. It's completely okay that you don't. Well, I think it's unprofessional. You're right. It is unprofessional for you. You probably shouldn't wear them. <laughs> Very good, Dov. So as we go out, I really want to hear your story of how you learned the importance of vulnerability because you talk about a time in your life where you fell off a mountain, fell on your head, and it wasn't with some time and perspective on it, you realized actually you fell on your own ego. So as you said, I fell 120 feet while free climbing, which is climbing without ropes, and it's for the moderately insane. It was, I was an adrenaline junkie at the time. I was extremely successful at that point in time, traveling the world, speaking all over, doing great. But I was an adrenaline junkie. Something was missing, and I intuitively knew that, but I didn't know what it was. When I fell, you know, it's, I hear people talk about this all the time. You know, I had a car accident. I had a heart attack. I had a divorce. I had a bankruptcy. And we all think that those are the moments that change people's lives. Those are, quote unquote, the moments of fall. Mine was a literal fall. 
But actually, our lives are not changed by that. The lives are not changed. That is called a pivotal moment. And a pivotal moment is important. But what happens is most people's egos get embedded in a pivotal moment. I know mine did. When people would ask me, how are you doing? I'd say, I'm great. I'm coming back with my jaw wired closed. That was an, I was not coming back because there is no back. Life doesn't move backwards. It's poisoned from behind, but it doesn't move backwards. And then I would try and go out and kept saying this while feeling very down and very depressed. And then one night I had a night out with my mates and we had this great night out. And for the first time, I'd had several nights out, but for the first time I could laugh. And I thought, okay, I'm coming back. I can, you know, I had this fun night. Or as I came in the back door, I opened the back door and light shone across the kitchen. As it shone across the kitchen, it, the light landed on the floor. And on the floor, there was kitty litter and there was cans and there was packages and there was a coffee grinds and it was a mess and it smelled terrible. And I went from feeling joy to feeling rage. All the sh- stuff that I'd been hiding down inside of me since that fall while saying I'm great was suddenly now to the surface. It was undeniable. And I was in race and I knew who the culprit was and I was going to find the culprit and I was wanted to kill the culprit. Let me be clear. I wanted to kill, not hurt, kill the culprit. And I walked into the living room and there's the culprit on the couch, curled up, looking all comfy. And I lifted my hand to strike and it's not who I am. So halfway down, something in me stopped me. And instead of striking, I put my hands underneath and lifted up my cat, pulled that cat to my chest and fell to my knees and started to weep because the cat was cold and the cat was dead. And I began to just not cry, but sob like, (gasps) and realize that just not very more than a few minutes in that I was sobbing for a cat that I didn't like. I didn't like this cat. It wasn't even my cat. Somebody gave it to me. It was a manipulation. So I'm no, I wasn't sobbing for this cat. It was very clear. And I realized I'm crying for the life that is gone. I'm finally allowing myself to grieve that life. And I was there on that floor in a fetal position for a very long time. And I realized there was only three paths. One, I could keep trying to get come back. That wasn't working. The second path was the most seductive of all. The second path was to remain a victim. It was so seductive to say, oh, it wasn't my fault, you know, like, Marlon Brando, I could have been a contender. It wasn't my fault. Stuff went against me. I'm a victim. That was so seductive because it, didn't, it meant I didn't have to do anything. And the third path was the toughest path of all. It required enormous vulnerability from me to me, which is to face my own ego, to realize that I'd been pursuing what wasn't true to me. What I needed to really find was my purpose in life, what really mattered. I had success, but I didn't know what success was beyond success which is the work that I do now. And I had to go looking for my purpose. And I spent a good nine months in that pretty dark place. As Joseph Campbell says, the treasure you seek is only to be found in the cave that you fear entering. And that's exactly what I did. I was terrified of going there, but I knew I had to go there. And that fall, as I said, I fell 120 feet from a self-imposed pedestal and landed on my ego. I got smashed to pieces And I swore I'd never come back to speaking or teaching or any of those things and actually told a friend of mine that. And about two years later, my friend was there and he said, I thought you weren't going to do this. I said, I'm not. And he goes, you are. I just saw you book appointments with people who want to come work with you. And I just saw you speak. And I go, no. And he goes, oh, you're lying to me now? I go, no, I'm not lying to you. He goes, I don't understand. I go, because I am doing it, but I'm not doing it from the same place. It's totally different. And that's the distinction. I had to get my ego out of the way. Now, is my ego dead? Of course not. Egos don't die. 
but I got it into the passenger seat and occasionally into the back seat. And sometimes it's really noisy. I have to lock it in the freaking trunk. But the truth of the matter is it ain't driving the vehicle anymore unless I fall asleep at the wheel. And if I fall asleep at the wheel, I suddenly find, oh, my ego's driving. Oh, get out and move. Because we all have an ego. You can't kill it. That's okay. It's there to help you. But don't let it run the show. When we let it run the show, it drives everyone. It drives people away from us. And what I really took from your book is when we show up in this vulnerable way and we share our truth, and I'm honored that you're sharing your truth with us here. When we share that, that pulls people close to us. It creates that oxytocin effect. It creates loyalty. But if we let the ego stay in control, if we maintain the facade of we, the leader, have it all together, and what's wrong with you? Why can't you get it together? There is no loyalty there. It's about showing up and being real, be authentic, and be vulnerable. Yeah, and just to finish that off, and just because I want people to understand, because particularly, I mean, we live in a society where I said intimacy is not safe. And so when I say be vulnerable, people are like, oh, my God, I couldn't do that. And the answer is, of course you can. But what's happened is your mind has polarized it. So you've got the wall and the mask, or you're vulnerable. And the polarity of the wall and the mask is emotional vomit. We're not talking about emotionally vomiting on people. We're talking about having discernment about what you deliver. And the example I love to give, and I think I gave it in the book, which is when Tim Cook came out and said he was gay, he was the CEO of Apple. That was incredibly vulnerable for him to come out and say he was gay. And he believed that God had created him that way. It was also vulnerable of Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete, to come out and say that. But neither of them went into the details of what they do in the bedroom. That would be emotional vomit. You don't need that. You just need the vulnerability to allow people to see you as human. And when then they show up in reciprocal vulnerability, there may be room for it to go a little bit deeper. So maybe you talk about your out story and about how it was difficult to come out when you were whatever age you were. It's reciprocal and it's measured on the reciprocity as opposed to vomiting it on somebody and then expecting them to bond with you. That won't work. So reciprocity is key. As we're talking, I'm so struck by we're never done as leaders. We always need work on ourselves and increase our self-awareness. And I know that you have a tool that you want to share with our profit designers, and it's the Authentic Leadership Self-Assessment. So can you tell us about that, Dove, and how our profit designers can get a hold of that? Absolutely. Thank you for asking, Sabrina. So here's the thing about it, just so everybody understands. You know, our friend Darren Virasami has 34 Strong, and it's about looking at your strengths. And I think looking at your strengths is incredibly important. But that doesn't mean being blind to where you need to build strength. And that's an important thing, too. So we have something called the Matrix. Okay, so Matrix, like the movie, dot fullmontyleadership.com. You don't need triple W, just matrix.fullmontyleadership.com. And it's a self-assessment tool that allows you to go through and look at the five areas of leadership, whether that's in your purpose or your authentic leadership in action or, or emotional intelligence or each of the areas, how you build culture, whatever it is. And just to look and say, okay, where are my real strengths here? And what do I really need to step into to bring that up? And it's just a very simple assessment and ask you some vulnerable questions. You don't have to share them with anybody else. It's for you. And you know, I'm not going through them. It's only for you. You get to reveal to you, but it allows you to have that because authentic leadership requires vulnerability with yourself first. 
then you can bring purpose to your organization. And here's the thing, you want to bring purpose not only to your organization, but you want to elicit that from the people who work with you. So their purpose can be bonded to the purpose of the organization. So matrix.fullmontyleadership.com. You can also go there and get, if you go to fullmontyleadership.com forward slash gift, G-I-F-T, you can actually download a couple of my eBooks. We put them there for you so you can go get them. And one of them is actually Authentic Leadership in Action. And another one is Purpose is Missing Peace, which shows you how to build a purpose-driven organization. Wow. I think our profit designers would love that. So thank you for sharing that with us, Doug. My absolute pleasure. I appreciate you being here with us. And I appreciate these insights that you've shared around loyalty. Well, Sabrina, I just want to say thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure and an honor, and I really hope that I served your audience. But I just want to say this before we finish. As you're listening to this, as you're watching this, I want you to understand something. I have a podcast. I've had one for 11 years, and it's a one-way system most of the time. And what I would ask you to do is this. I would ask you to write to Sabrina and tell her what you got out of this show and more importantly, what you're going to do with it. Yes. I want you to write and tell her what you're going to do with it. You can write to me, my private email, D-O-V, dove at dovebaron.com. Dove at dovebaron.com. You can write to me, write to Sabrina, tell us what you got out of this episode and what you're going to do with it. What's more is I want you to go into the platforms wherever you listen to podcasts. And this is important. Rate review and subscribe to the show and then share it with your friends because Sabrina's giving you this time. She's finding these amazing guests for you to add value to you. You need to make it known. Oh yeah, you should keep doing this, Sabrina. I appreciate it. So that she knows that. So send it out there, get more downloads to it, get the message out there, share the wealth. And again, let us know what you got out of it. We're going to do about it. And don't just let us know about this show, but let Sabrina know about any show because she's taking the time to bring you really high value material. Thank you for that, Dove. I appreciate that. And it's absolutely true. I love it when we have folks coming into our Profit by Design podcast Facebook group and commenting on the episodes because when I know what stands out, it tells me this is what we need to deliver more of to keep serving our profit designers. And absolutely, those ratings and those reviews are critical because that's how people discover our podcast. So thank you for that. And where can folks find your podcast? You can find my podcast. So if you just go to fullmontyleadership.com and click on podcast, you'll find us there. But we are on the usual places like Apple and Spotify and iHeartRadio and all those things. And you obviously find my podcast on uh, traditional radio stations across the United States. And you can also tune into the videos of them on Roku TV on my on Dove Varen channel. But anything you need about me, including my YouTube channel and, and blogs with 700 articles and more than 700 videos, you can find them all through fullmontyleadership.com. Excellent. Thank you, Dov. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Is your business on track to being a highly profitable, great place to work? Take our assessment at tapthepotential.com forward slash assessment and find out now. Thank you for spending time with us today. Join our conversation in the Profit by Design podcast Facebook group. Share your thoughts on today's episode, ask us questions, and let us know what you want to hear about next. Visit our website at ProfitByDesignPodcast.com to access resources from our sponsors and tools we've created for you. Subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're listening to right now. There's a subscribe button right there. Go ahead and hit it so that you always get a notification when we release a new episode. And finally, share our podcast with a friend if you know a friend who would enjoy it. 
Thanks again for listening. This is Real Life Business. Keep your chin up. Keep moving forward. You got this.